Well, hello, everyone. We've been called the enemy of the people, branded purveyors of fake news, sometimes yelled at, trolled and abused. Such has been the life of a reporter during the era of Donald Trump. No US president has been more media focused than President Trump and nor has any US president dominated global news cycles like him. While most Australians have been watching the US presidential campaign from afar, Australian foreign correspondents have been on the ground in the United States. It's great to have you with us for this event brought to you by the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney. I'm Zoe Daniel, former US Bureau Chief at ABC News. And before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. The University of Sydney stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country which you are on and pay respects to their elders past, present and future. Our guests today are Cameron Stewart, an associate editor and Washington correspondent for the Australian newspaper. This is his eighth US presidential election since he started with the paper. He's also a regular contributor for Sky News. Jacob Grieber is the Australian Financial Review's US correspondent based in Washington, where he's been since mid-2018. He was previously the AFR's economics correspondent in Canberra and has worked as a journalist for more than 24 years in Australia, Europe and the US. And Matthew Knott is North America correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. He moved to the US in 2017 to study political journalism at Columbia and was previously based in Canberra. Matthew has recently described his survival from a fall from a fifth story rooftop in New York City, and we'll get to that later. Welcome everyone. So I'd like to start with a bit of a summary from each of you. Um, all of you have been getting out and about around the US, something that none of us can do, especially in a time of COVID. So just give me a snapshot of where you see that the race is at a week out. Cam, I know that you're on the road in rural Pennsylvania. So let's start with you. Because I will look up, I've just been to a Trump rally a couple of hours ago and it's interesting, every time, every time you go to a Trump rally, as, as all of us here have, uh, it, it really, it's a great reminder as to how much support there is for Donald Trump. I'm not just talking about support, I'm talking about enthusiasm. And, I'm to, and beyond the rallies, when you travel through, I've, I've done quite a lot of trips through the, especially through the Midwest and the, the Rust Belt there, where Trump won in 2016. And there are a lot of Trump signs. There's a lot of enthusiasm. And you drive through and you, you look at that and then you look at the polls and you see and you wonder, is there a disconnect again like 2016? It's, it's really hard to tell. But there's certainly not, not a lack of passion for Trump, even though he's seen as down in the polls. He's seen in many ways as almost down and out, barring a miraculous recovery. Yet out there, out, out there in Trump country, for want of a better word, he really is still very popular. So it's going to be fascinating. I, I don't think it's over yet. Uh, and I mean, the country is on edge. It's passionate. It's incredibly divided. All the election campaigns I've covered in America, this is easily the most divided I've ever seen in the country. And so I think it's going to be a cracker contest. Great. So I'm just going to skip through the top of my screen here. Matthew, you're the next one across. You've heard Cam's sort of snapshot, and I know you've been out in the field too. What are you seeing? Yeah, I think that that is completely true. You see that absolute enthusiasm when you go to the Trump rallies and you meet lots of uh, Trump supporters out and about uh, in the street. This was I was a bit worried at the start of the campaign about whether you would find it possible to access voters given we're in a pandemic. But one of the things about America is that people really are out and about and you can still 
uh, find them, but it's a different dynamic depending on where you go. So I spent some time in the suburbs of Detroit, you know, really speaking more to suburban women there. And there is a different feeling to what you get at a Trump rally. Um, you do find people who are changing their votes from the last time. Perhaps, uh, they, perhaps last time around they voted for Trump, perhaps last time they voted for a third party candidate. They couldn't really stand Hillary Clinton, but they didn't like Trump either. This time I find most of those people who are kind of independent, um, they're pulled different ways in policy. They do tend to say that they're going for uh, Biden this time. So that's going to be the fascinating factor to see is on what scale that is and if the polls are reflecting that accurately. Mm. Jacob, what's your impression? Everyone, everyone is pretty uh, clear on how they're going to vote one way or the other. Um, you, you don't find a lot of people umming and ahhing anymore. Uh, and the ones that you do find saying that are probably not going to vote um, as I said, that's a rare crowd. I'm, I agree with both what uh, Cam and uh, Matthew say about about how engaged people are. Um, and that's probably what's different about 2020 than 2016. Um, this is this is going to be a mass turnout election. Uh, you, you just see it. You see the signs of that everywhere. Uh, I think we're up now to 60 million have already cast their ballots. Uh, you see, you see signs everywhere. You see people who are uh, engaged with the issues, and then when you get into Trump country, as both the previous two guys just said, you are struck by just how strong the support for this guy still is. It's like it's like all the negative stuff for the last four years has disappeared. They don't trust you as a journalist. Uh, they catch you some slack when they find out you're an Australian, um, and and they believe Trump completely. Uh, and they all they all love what he's doing to the Supreme Court. That's the kind of thing you just you just get that on steroids when you're out there. Um, and I just think the other the other interesting observation: the pandemic has made everything very strange as far as elections go. So it's really hard to know how strong the support for Biden is out there. We we're all kind of we we can see what's going on with Trump's support. It's in your face. It's visceral, it's energetic, and, and it makes you go, wow, there is probably at least some, some proportion of the vote out there that's hidden and is for Trump. But we, it's really difficult to see what's going on with Biden. He's not doing these events. It's all through a, like what we're doing right now. So you don't get that, that sense of people uh, sort of getting behind him. I suspect anyway that would be lower than what it was for, say, Obama. But still, it'd be so nice to actually see whether whether he has any of that kind of support. So that's just a sort of journalistic challenge. Yeah, and you you sort of um, drill down into Cameron and Matthew's points about perhaps what you're seeing in the field being a little bit different to the way that the polls look. Cam, one of your articles, I think, distilled it by saying, well, could the polls once again be wrongly discounting Trump just as they did in 2016, certainly there's a disconnect between what the polls say and the impression you get when driving through the swing states. And you mentioned travelling through the Midwest and the South, there being a lot more Trump signs than Biden signs. And, you know, it, it just reminds me of 2016, driving around being told by the polls that Hillary was going to win the election when all we were seeing into infinity was uh, Trump-Pence 
signs and even dredging up a Hillary supporter to speak to us was actually quite difficult at times. And I think that also says something about the differences between perhaps Republicans and Democrats and also Trump supporters and others, that Trump supporters are always very willing to speak to this. But what we kind of need to drill down to is, you know, can you expand what you guys are seeing into anything um, or is this just a totally different year four years later with better polling, better analysis? Well, I, I, I think uh, it's, it's probably, I mean, the, the, one of the great mysteries here is how much has polling improved? You know, uh, a lot of the pollsters say that they're, they're, they've um, re-weighted their polls uh, to take better account of certain demographics, et cetera, so that therefore they're more accurate. Well, that might be the case, but, um, but how do a whole bunch of things play into it? How does this massive postal vote play into it? And how does, as Jacob said, the invisibility on the trail of Biden, I mean, we cannot as reporters follow Biden. It simply doesn't happen because um, it's a very narrow pooled press, which is obviously American press rather than foreign press. Doesn't even tell you where he's going half the time. So we can't follow him. We don't get a sense of that. The conventions didn't happen. They were virtual conventions. All of the touch points which a journalist relies on to try and get a sense of this country uh, are not really there. And so that's why it is a really big void at the moment to uh, you know, as, as to what people are actually thinking. One thing I was, I've been so struck with, though, is I think there's very few undecided voters. I think the great question in this election is going to be uh, what the turnout is like, because I don't think there's many at all. Just, just last week, a very quick example, I was driving through the suburbs, separate trip to this through Philadelphia, and I was going down a street. I saw this um, flag that was flying upside down. I thought, whoa, that's interesting. So I knocked on the door of this house and said, why is your flag flying upside down? And he said, it's an um, it, international um, symbol of distress. He said, the owner said, our country's in distress. We have a, a president who's taken no responsibility whatsoever for a pandemic that's killed 200,000 people. We have a president that's, that's knocking down our allies around the world, and we have a president we're embarrassed by. And literally across the street, there was a, a house in exactly the same street um, with a huge Great America, uh, Make America Great Again flag. I knocked on the door of that guy. And, uh, and he told me, he said, I am voting for Trump because he's taking the country in the direction that I want. And what's important to me is, is law and order. Um, my Second Amendment, uh, judges like Amy Barrett being appointed to the Supreme Court. And I'm really genuinely worried that a guy like Joe Biden will be controlled by the left wing of his party. So that's why I'm voting. A very small example in one street uh, and in a, in a swing state. This sort of massively partisan divide is, is really quite striking. And you've all kind of mentioned the, this record number of undecideds. And I, I think, you know, the, those who analyse analyze this at an academic level would, would confirm that. Um, but I'm still just questioning whether there are those hidden Trumpers, those secret Trumpers um, who just aren't even saying that they're going to vote, that, aren't, that don't, don't appear in the polling. Is that, is that a possibility? Matthew, can you speak to that? I don't, from my understanding of looking at it, it's actually highly debated, or in fact, people say it's a bit of a myth that there is this shy Trump phenomenon. What it is has been, the problem wasn't so much people lying to pollsters as it was just sampling too many of certain people, sampling too many college educated people. The idea that people are lying doesn't really flesh up, for example, when people do online surveys, they come out about the same as people speaking on the phone. So there's no reason if you're a shy Trump voter why you wouldn't punch it 
into an anonymous form. So yeah, I find people are very open about talking about their support for Trump. I don't find people are ashamed about it, uh, ashamed about it at all. Um, yeah, but the undecided thing is totally true. The election is so exciting. On one hand, you don't want it to end because this is a, a very exciting moment. But then again, it feels like you really could have it now or last week or the week before because events aren't changing anyone's mind. Uh, policies aren't changing anyone's mind. It's not like people are wanting to see how much their tax return will be different under one candidate or the other. That's not the type of thing I'm hearing, which I think you'd hear more in an Australian election. It's so broad picture about the personalities of the two candidates, really actually just about Trump. You know, do you respond well to this person's style and character or not? And that's where people are going. Mm. Jacob, I'm curious to pick your brain about that sort of economic stuff. I mean, my kind of read in 2016 in part was that people just really vote based on what's in their, in their hip pocket. Um, the, you know, their large overriding concern is the economy, jobs, providing a future for their children, all those sorts of things. Given that this has effectively become a COVID election, does that economic factor still stand? And in fact, aren't those two things sort of inexorably linked in some ways? Well, I mean, the Democrats, the Democrats only talk about COVID. Uh, well, when I say only, that's, that's their primary thing they talk about. You can't fix the economy until you fix COVID. And that's, that's a huge albatross around Donald Trump's neck, to be sure. And, and I think if he does end up losing next week, one of the things people will probably say is that if he hadn't, if he hadn't messed up the first debate and, and had a tantrum about the second debate so that it didn't happen, if he'd used those two debates to really talk about how he's going to solve the economy and the economic problem, I suspect it might be a much closer race at this point in time. Uh, he's got a GDP number coming out at the end of this week, which the Americans have this sort of really idiosyncratic way of talking about GDP growth where they annualise the quarterly figure. So you get a big number. Uh, this year, it's going to be an insanely big number because it'll be like 25 or 30% annualised growth. So Trump's going to jump on that. And he's going to make that argument uh, that he's the man who can, can bring that growth back in the coming year. And he's doing that every day. But it's getting lost in the COVID, in the COVID issue. It's, 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 it's treacle. He's got to try and swim through that. Um, uh, that issue uh, makes it very difficult. I, I was just going to add one other thing to what, to, to what Matthew was talking about, which is this idea of the sort of, the sort of hidden Trump voter. One thing you notice about Trump voters, and I don't know if the other guys agree, there's a kind of real grievance there about if they, if they, if they go out and sort of put a flag out the front of their house or a sign, they, they report getting a lot of abuse for it. And so there's this kind of, there's this kind of sort of, there's the ones who are brave enough to do it and they cover their houses in Trump, Trump gear and they're the sort of heroes and they'll tell you, oh, all the neighbours come over and whisper, you know, love what you're doing, but I don't want to do it because, you know, I don't want to get my roof rocked or my windows smashed. So then, I think that I don't hear that on the Democrat side, but I hear that on the Republican side. Mm. Could I just add something, Zoe, just around the, um, the economic policy side? Um, and I think the data bears this out, and I found it speaking to actual people, that there's a big gender divide. So I've spoken to uh, married couples where the husband 
is supporting Trump and the wife is supporting Biden. And their reasons are very different. The husband's reasons tend to be, oh, look, our, uh, our retirement account here, they call it a 401k. It's basically like a superannuation account. It's gone up under Trump. I look at that. We're a lot richer. Our family's doing well economically and I'm gonna vote for him again. Why wouldn't I? I don't really like his tweets, but that's okay. And then the woman says, oh, but I think he's a bully. I think he's a terrible person. Um, I don't like that women, um, the children are being separated from their families. Um, and the statistics bear that out as well. So that's a bit of a divide that's playing out between men and women, I think, and how they're interpreting politics. Yeah, and in fact, Matthew, you wrote in one of your pieces um, that one of the those that you spoke to talked of the existential threat to democracy in Trump, and this was the reason that they were flipping to Biden this election. Uh, I'm also sort of interested in extending that out, though, to that sort of sentiment that if you vote for Trump, you're a bad person in some way, and that whether that actually pushes people towards Trump in a sort of counterintuitive sense, in that they don't want to be railroaded by Democrats into, you know, some sort of, I guess, ethical vortex that they're being pushed into in the way that they're perceived. Yeah, I think the language that um, Americans are using is to discuss their politics. I, I personally find it unhelpful because it elevates it to a point where People can't even have a conversation with each other. And I saw this um, in Arizona where these uh, Biden supporters who are traditionally Republicans were holding up their signs and a woman pulled over to talk to them. And the Biden supporter was talking about, oh, you know, we have a, a fascist in the White House who's going to create this right wing dictatorship. And then the Trump supporter is saying if Biden wins, it's socialism is going to be reigning and we're going to be like Cuba or Venezuela. And there's no room for these people to even talk about politics in a sensible way because they're living in such alternative universes and it elevates the stakes so much more than just who's going to be a better leader. So you're really dealing with that level of divide that you know, I don't think we have still, hopefully, in Australia. Em, I can see you nodding along there. Do you want to add something? Yeah, I was just going to say, um, yeah, look, it, it's true. I mean, the, there's something, this is really interesting because I think this election could really break the historical mould in America in the sense it might be an election that is, that is decided not in the economy for the first time in so long. You know, I mean, you're talking to people like Matthew's recounting stories, people on the road, especially women I speak to, uh, really interesting. Uh, a couple of women I spoke to um, in my last trip, and, and they said, um, one of them said, I think Trump's done a great job economically, but I'm going to vote for Biden. I said, you're kidding me, why is that? Uh, and she said, on that, for that one, she said, on morality, she said, I don't think uh, Biden's a socialist, so I think we can just survive him. But, um, but on the morality of his divisiveness and the sort of character Trump is, I cannot vote for him in that respect. The other woman I spoke to who was a Trump, who voted for Trump in 2016 is not voting for him now. She said, because, um, because of the coronavirus, she said, she said, simple as that, that is absolutely a, um, a game changer. She was the hairdresser. She couldn't work for 110 days. She blames it on him for not reading it quickly enough and doing stuff about it. Um, so, and I just think the combination of those two, Donald Trump's style and the pandemic uh, are really, historical news in the sense of I think that if you know we'll see what happens next week but if Trump loses 
this will be well, the first election for a long time that just was not decided on the economy because the economy has been his consistent, uh, even though the economy is crushed at the moment, People, most voters see him as better to restore the economy than Biden, which is quite interesting. And it's easily his most powerful, strong suit. And I think that because Trump has run, in my opinion, a very undisciplined campaign, he's only getting it together now. At the very end, he's getting it together. Um, and he hasn't focused on that, whereas that is a really strong suit. And I think that was something that he squandered by not pushing hard enough on that issue. But I think if he does lose, that will be the reason. And, and you see it in the polls too. I mean, you see it in the polls that Trump is, Trump is now level with Biden on economic management, which is, that's sort of unheard of for a Republican incumbent. The, the Republicans always miles ahead, but streets ahead on economic management. And for most of this year, that was true. But as this pandemic grinds on and on and on and on, and people see the consequence and cost of of what's happening. The kids are still at home. Parents are still babysitting and doing their jobs on Zoom and what have you. It's just, and businesses can't get back. I mean, I'm sure both of both of you guys will agree. Every inner city you go to is is a sort of wasteland. There's, you know, everything's still closed. And this is, this is, how long have we been doing this now? It's been eight months. So it's brought, it's brought that, that relative threshold for economic management. It's made it level. And that's, that's, really, that's really diabolical for Trump um, because that was the thing that he had, you know. So on that front, I mean, my, my impression, say, late last year or early this year was that Trump was walking into a second term. Do you think it's fair to say that he, he probably would have quite easily won the election were it not for the pandemic? I, I, I mean, I wouldn't say quite easily, but I, 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 felt, I felt with with the way Democrats were conducting themselves in their primary, sort of flirting with Bernie Sanders and, and, and sort of the Elizabeth Warren way of looking at the world, that they were creating a huge opening for Trump. Um, well, notwithstanding pandemic, which we didn't know about at the time. And, and I think, I think when, when you saw that Trump just wasn't taking it seriously early on, that's when, the, that's when you sort of felt, oh, this is changing now. I, I think Trump would actually be ahead at this point if he hadn't had a pandemic. Because I don't so know what else would have gone wrong. And I think, I think uh, to Jacob's point there, two things have happened here that are really crucial. When, when Trump, I, I think Trump was going to win. Uh, in fact, I thought he was going to win until March, you know. Uh, and uh, I think he's really, the pandemic is really hitting with the seniors. Right? That's very, very important. I mean, they're the ones dying and they're the ones who... Um, who, who feel that his Trump's whole open, open up the economy, come on, it's only the flu, that sort of approach that he's got. Uh, they feel they're sacrificial lambs. And, and, you know, you can see, and they're genuine supporters of Trump normally, or, or conservatives, and, and he's, he's lost that to a large degree. And with, the, with women, of course, I mean, uh, probably a lot of women have more responsibility for their children than the fathers do. Schools are mostly out around the country, it's uneven, but even the ones that have gone back, it's a bit of a mess. I mean, domestic life is, is upside down. And so I think those two factors are a real blow to Trump. And they're clearly things that would, just would not have happened if the virus hadn't happened. Matthew, you have a comment? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with all that. I do remember, I think we were all there in the State of the Union address um, in the Capitol and Trump gave this speech and I know I came out of it thinking, wow, that's a really potent election message. He was talking about how the economy was at record highs and the Democrats were going down this socialist route, and he was behind in the polls, but you thought, this is a very powerful message, and that got washed and he away. Just, he just shrugged off impeachment, you know. 
small matter of impeachment just yeah but that said i i do think it's not so much the pandemic itself as his response to it not even getting into the policy aspect of how he's handled it but how he talks about it and doesn't seem to be taking it seriously um he achieved a bump in his approval ratings initially when he started to seem to be taking it seriously and i think there would have been kind of independent-minded people, if he had been seen to be working really hard at it, would go, okay, we're gonna give him a chance. You get behind your leader in a time of crisis. But he completely squandered that opportunity. I think he was really so intent on running the, the plan that he had around the economy and around the Democrats. There was an opportunity here that he didn't capitalize on by taking this virus seriously because he kept saying it would be gone by Easter, it'll be gone and it's, we're having record cases now. So the virus has outlasted his strategy. Mm. I think it's, 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 I was just gonna sort of add before I come back to you, Cam, that, you know, Trump's managed to control the narrative through his entire presidency. So he, he controls the conversation throws a Molotov cocktail in one direction if it's not going the way that he wants it to so that he can divert around whatever thing is going badly. The pandemic is the one thing that he has not been able to control in that sense. And I, I think some of what Matthew just said is quite astute. But Cam, what did you want to add? I was just going to say that I think, I mean, in a way that the virus is, is the, um, the, the tragedy, political tragedy for Donald Trump if he, if he does lose in the sense that the, the global lesson of the pandemic politically is that um, those leaders who who deal with it well are extremely popular. Jacinta Ahern, um, Scott Morrison, Angela Merkel. I mean, you know, you, you win elections. You are popular if you control this virus. And I think Trump's initial decision to literally handle Australian rules metaphor to the whole problem, a lot of the problems, to the, to the governors, to the local mayors and things, and basically... Uh, not take a strong federal approach, or at least try to be seen to take a strong federal approach. America, of course, is, as you know, is a great patchwork of, of networks of states and local governments, etc. You haven't got the same federal control as you do in Australia, for example. But still, he could have been seen to take a much stronger uh, federal approach and at least look like he was really taking it seriously. And I think in the end, that's just come back to bite him in a massive way. I want to get to kind of logistics for you guys of covering the election. And Cam, I'll stay with you for a moment, given that you've covered eight US elections. How difficult or different has this been because of that, that really complicated COVID aspect? Just, just how hard has it made it for you to do your work? Oh, it's, uh, it's, it's a nightmare in several ways. Uh, I mean, you don't particularly want to be jettisoning around the country in the, in the time of, of COVID anyway. But the bottom line is there's not much to go to, Zoe. It's, it's, it's like, there's not like a, you know, you covered 2016, so did I. I mean, fabulous. You know, you've got the conventions, the theatre of those magnificent political conventions. Uh, you have two candidates racing around the country. Now we haven't. We effectively only have one candidate racing around the country because we can't, as journalists, get to the other candidate. There is so much less happening. You see... There's, so much, there's not much to go to, frankly. I mean, you can go out and you can travel through, as, as all three of us have, travel through the various states, um, box popping people, uh, trying to take the temperature as best as journalists can reasonably do with, you know, a, a tape recorder in hand. Um, uh, but there's not much to actually go to. I went to a Trump rally today. You know, that's pretty much about as good as it gets. 
Uh, and so it, I think it's just, it's difficult to um, take the temperature of the country as well as you might be able to otherwise. It, it's strange. Matthew, I mentioned in my introduction your incredible life experience of falling off a fifth-storey rooftop in New York and surviving to tell the tale. I'd urge everyone to read your piece from Good Weekend on the weekend. It's a startling story. Um, but, you know, sort of in the bigger picture on that, recovering from something like that mentally and physically, trying to cover a campaign in the middle of a pandemic, just how have you gone about doing that? I, I've just kind of had to keep going. Luckily, I'm uh, physically very well and can get around. Um, I was worried. I must admit, I was most worried about uh, being alive and, you know, being a, having full control of my arms and legs and whatnot. But I pretty quickly was thinking about, oh, I have to be out reporting on the election. Like, that's what this whole year is about. So in a way, to be honest, I've just kind of, this was a great thing for me to have here in November to just run really hard at and perhaps also maybe put some of the other thoughts about mortality in the back of my brain because you've got this big exciting thing to report about so that's been helpful um and just just on that yeah I think for us as journalists we definitely do miss going to some of those big conventions and whatnot I know particularly for tv journalists they're finding it hard because you want those pictures behind you potentially of a Biden rally to give that, you can't give that flavor right now. The only benefit of it is that you have to be a little bit more self-directed. Like the thing about a Trump rally or a Biden rally or the Bernie Sanders rallies we went to in the primaries is, you know what those people think and you know what they're gonna say um, mm -hmm. when you go out into normal, uh, normal towns and cities and country areas you meet people who are less ideological. So that's the one benefit of it is that you can't just rely on the choreographed events, but it's, it's definitely different. And you do have a doubt in the back of your mind about who is not out and about, who is not possible to talk to, you know, people who are, some people are not leaving their homes very much, to be honest, if COVID is bad in their area, they're basically staying at home and getting uh, food delivered if they've got, vulnerable relatives and whatnot. So they're so, not available for a journalist to bump into at a diner. You, you mentioned sort of having to confront your own mortality after what happened, but I wonder if that in any way feeds into the way that you report, report generally, but also the way that you've um, considered reporting on the campaign, particularly during a pandemic where a lot of people are really confronting um, things like healthcare, availability of healthcare, particularly in the US and, and their own mortality and their futures and all those sorts of things. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, yeah, if it comes up in conversation, people are usually very, very, uh, very sympathetic to you. Um, uh, but yeah, my, my experience with the healthcare system was kind of, yeah, luckily I had insurance through work and everything. So I haven't been left with a million dollar uh, medical bills or anything. But um, no, you just kind of keep going, to be honest. Jacob, you wrote a really interesting piece um, talking about the potential environmental policies of, of a Biden administration and just how those are being received, particularly by uh, the working classes in, in the Rust Belt. 
and you know, we spoke a little bit earlier about this concern among part of the Republican cohort about a, a drastic shift to socialism under a Biden administration. Just, just how deeply does that run? Can you kind of take us through? Oh, um, I, I think seeing? that is. I think that's a profound motivator for Republicans who support Trump. They, they really do worry about what what Biden wants to do with taxes and regulations because. I think they feel that they feel that when Trump arrived, they, there was this kind of growth impetus that that drove down unemployment. And I mean, as someone who's looked at the economic numbers for a while, obviously a lot of that was the Obama administration. But Trump really gave it a kick on uh, in the minds of many of those people, and they worry, they genuinely worry that that some of these these policies that are coming through will hurt them. I think the real the, the place where it really matters is where Cam, Cam is at the moment in Pennsylvania. I think this energy issue is something that Australians actually should be quite familiar with in terms of when they think about last year's federal election and the way the way issues around gas and and resources played out for instance in Queensland where you had a lot of those sort of uh, working class seats up the Queensland coast that felt the Labor Party wasn't reflecting their concerns about jobs. It was it was sort of leaning more towards the green agenda in the cities, and Pennsylvania is almost a, is like a is like a perfect microcosm of that. And it's why they're all putting so much emphasis into that race, and why I think last week's debate was a big moment when Biden talked about. Uh, he, he's incredibly clumsy in his initial answer where he said, yes, I want to get rid of it effectively. Realised he'd, he'd sort of, he'd blundered. So he talked about transition and, and reducing emissions, uh, you know, through carbon sequestration and things like that. That That is going to be uh, really interesting to watch because there's big parts of Pennsylvania where people's livelihoods are, uh, uh, is kind of directly linked to the energy story, whether they're in, in a sort of resurgent manufacturing part of that state or directly involved in the, in the gas industry, the fracking industry. That's a big deal. And those, those voters matter. And they, 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 the ones I spoke to, and I spoke to a, a Boilermakers Union just outside of Pittsburgh, they were worried. They were really worried. And, and there's a sort of anger there as well. Democrats, you know, Democrats have sort of done us over for decades on free trade and we're losing jobs to China. This is the stuff where Trump just he's he's hitting pay dirt when he goes there. Mm. Uh, and now and now you want us to give up this this incredible boom that's landed in Pennsylvania as, as recently as the last decade. So mm. I think that's going to be a big one to watch next week. And in fact, we have an audience question from Laura Neen, who says, do you think Biden's comments against the oil industry at the last debate will turn blue collar and business people against him? Is it, is, is it that quick a trigger? I, I think they were suspicious up to this point. Um, they, they, they were probably prepared to give Biden a, lot of, a bit of slack on that. But when they heard him do it in that way, I think it might have, it might have crystallised some of their fears. Uh, and they will they will swallow Trump for his his uh, you know his his own particular way of, of behaving and carrying on on Twitter. They'll put that aside because this is as you said before this is hip this is hip nerve real life jobs and income stuff. So I, I can see you nodding there. Yeah, go ahead. So can I that, that uh, I mean just for for the sake of our, our uh, listeners on this thing, I, I just come back from the rally here in Pennsylvania and it was fascinating what he did. Um, 
what they did was was they stopped the rally halfway through and they put up all of the uh, quotes, the uh, videos of Joe Biden, um, everything he said about fracking, um, everything he said about the oil industry, and everything he said about fossil fuel. Now it was selectively edited to uh, to obviously make it look sharper than it actually was, but nevertheless, the you you, you watch it. You see the crowd's reaction. The crowd was absolutely going wild about it. And then they cut to Donald Trump. You might recall in, in the uh, in the debate, he said, "Well, my God, really, you've just lost Texas, Pennsylvania, and Ohio." You know. And as soon as the word Pennsylvania came out, whoa, yelling and screaming. I, I just looked at it. It was such an effective piece of political theatre. It really was. And you know, he's going around. He's done three rallies today in Pennsylvania. Three rallies. There's a 74 year old who was in hospital with COVID two weeks ago. It's extraordinary stuff. And mm -hmm. this is the message he's doing, exactly that economic message on fracking, on oil. And, you know, you just wonder how much it's going to cut through. It really might. Uh, fear, fear works. Fear, a fear-based campaign will work to, you know, more than, a, more than the more tricky campaign that Biden has to run, which is there is opportunity and, and let's be optimistic about the shift to, to a, a more carbon neutral economy. That, that's... That, that requires people to believe a lot of things about what might or might not happen, whereas Trump well, can just uh, run the, the fear story. And Biden being seen as a sort of relatively middle Democrat candidate, therefore steps quite substantially to the left on that one issue. So it's, it's possibly confusing uh, for moderate Republicans who might have embraced a Biden campaign and then are, are stopped when they consider the potential policies on climate. Paul Retter um, in the audience asks, and sort of going further down this, this rabbit hole that we're on, um, that we're talking a lot about Trump's campaign, obviously, and, you know, he controls the narrative and continues to do so, uh, but we're not talking that much about Biden's campaign, and in part that goes to what Cam said about not being what, able to get campaign? to Biden. <laughs> yeah, but also Biden is, you know, it's a small target strategy, um, which he's employed throughout the year, in part because of COVID, it, it, is that a dangerous strategy when you have Trump out doing rock star rallies per his his usual caper, um, and Biden keeping that that low profile of, uh, well, perhaps if I just don't do much at all, uh, we'll sail through. I think it would be a potentially dangerous strategy if he wasn't leading by so much in the polls, and I think this is calculated um, decision by the Biden campaign. They are leading by about 8% nationally. Um, in theory, that's an election winning lead. Uh, if things don't change, obviously there's a week to go. And I think they're ly lying low because they can, you know. Uh, and so it's a, it's a, it basically they don't want, don't want Biden to make any gaffes. They feel that Trump can defeat himself to a degree. Also, we've all seen, um, all of us have been on the, on the road with Biden before the pandemic during the Democrat primaries. He is a very underwhelming campaigner. I think that the pandemic, strangely enough, has actually helped his situation in the sense he's not a great person on the hustings. He's not that inspiring. He certainly doesn't rally people in the same way that Donald Trump does. And so he's, he's not a... So, Add that to the fact that um, he doesn't need to be out there. And I think that's the strategy. But it would be really interesting, Zoe, if in the last um, three or four days of this campaign, if we see Trump suddenly coming back in the polls in the same way that he did against Hillary, um, would that change the calculus of the Biden campaign? Yeah, well, um, 
looking at the Senate um, too, I guess getting back to the sort of environmental policies, Chris Baker asks, without, without control of the Senate, how many environmental reforms could actually be enacted if Biden wins? Matthew, I might come back to you just in regard to the Senate. I don't know if you've been watching that closely, but ha how is that looking? Yeah, if the Senate looks close, I think closer than the White House race, but the Democrats are definitely confident that they could take a majority. The thing about the Senate is though, even if the Democrats were to take a narrow majority, it's still incredibly hard for them to get anything done uh, under these filibuster rules. You know, you need 60 votes, not just 50 to get big policies done. So there's gonna be, if the Democrats win the White House and the Senate, there's gonna be a lot of talk about all these structural issues we're talking about, which is quite radical in American context about changing the Senate rules. Uh, they're talking about expanding the size of the Supreme Court. Biden hasn't even ruled that out, even though it's a very risky thing, uh, because they know that to get anything done, the, the, this gridlock system isn't going to work. They learned in the Obama years that uh, you know, Republicans are not going to be in a mood to help them achieve things. The interesting thing is Biden uh, is campaigning uh, on a theme of unity and bipartisanship and bringing people together. But in practical terms, no one expects that that's going to work, even if they have a slim Senate majority, he'd essentially just be uh, a figurehead. So there's going to be some really big controversial uh, structural reforms happening potentially after the election if they do take back the Senate. Jacob, any thoughts on that? Well, I think the, uh, to, to, make, to go back to the sort of climate change piece, the main thing he wants to do is a $2 trillion kind of, kind of you know, infrastructure piece that, that accelerates the transition. And not the, the sort of the things Matthew's talking about are going to be really crucial, and that goes to how they manage the Senate, the filibuster. Um, do they do those things around the Supreme Court? I suspect a lot of that stuff's overstated because if you look at the Senate races and look at the Democrats that are likely to win seats, most of them are actually pretty moderate. They're not. They're not from the Bernie Sanders AOC wing of the party. They're. They're kind of. In Australia, some of them would actually probably be quite comfortable in the Liberal Party. Um, they're much more. They're much more sort of centrist types. Um, Steve Bullock in Montana, for example. You know, he's a, he's a, he's a, he, he's probably like an old Peter Beattie style politician. He 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 would have cleaned up a whole. He he regularly won as governor in that state by winning people who also vote for Trump. So these are these are different characters coming into the Senate. Mm. I just I just just to go back to that other point we were talking about, which is the sort of the invisible Biden and Cam's right. He, he wouldn't be doing this if he was three points ahead or four points ahead nationally. He, he'd be out there. He would, he would be taking that calculated risk about COVID and being much more aggressive. I just think there's a danger there for the Democrats. It may look comfortable at the moment on a head to head federal sort of level for the presidency. It's really, really tight when you look at the Senate races and those Senate races are going to be all an end all for a Biden administration. He, he's, he's going to need to win those as many of those Senate races as he possibly can. And it's a tall order. And I'm, I'm a little surprised that he's giving the impression of coasting at this point. I think it's really dangerous. 
can I say one thing, Zoe, that, that I just wonder, I really scratched my head today, list looking at what Biden's plan is. Biden is going to, um, is going to campaign in Georgia and Iowa. Now, they are two states that are clearly Republican red states. And I just thought to myself, I thought, I wonder if they're being overconfident here. You know, I mean, I, the great danger for the Democrats is, is they're sort of being cocky and they want, to, they want to get as much territory as they can if Biden is going to win. Um, but, you know, it was inter it's a really interesting uh, fact that he's doing that. It's, it certainly shows there is some confidence there unless they're just trying to get inside Donald Trump's head by doing it. Uh, because, I mean, you know, the polls were not accurate last time and I would think they'd be really just trying to shore up the main game rather than spreading it and trying to get the, as big a win as possible. There's been this sort of stories floating around about um, Hunter Biden's laptop and sort of suspicion over the Biden family. To me, it feels like a sort of way of trying to spin the suspicion that hung over Hillary for a lot of her campaign and, and generated a lot of hatred for her. Is that is that conversation something that's resonating in the electorate? You know, when you go and talk to people, do they say, oh, Biden's dodgy? Uh, at, at, at a Trump rally, you would. I don't think it's cutting through to less politically engaged people in the same way. It's been quite remarkable how most of the media, the mainstream media, has handled it. Like the New York Post put these stories on their front page, but by and large, the rest of the media has really stayed away and said, we can't verify these documents. It's not getting nearly as much attention. Uh, it's not as important to people as the issues of the pandemic. It makes some of this seem a little esoteric and what was happening with Ukraine all these years ago. And there isn't, there hasn't been, to use the cliche, a, a smoking gun linking it to Biden. So it, it's just not from what everything I can see is just not cutting through in the same way. It's not tapping into this pre-existing view that people had of Biden. Of course, Trump supporters who don't like Biden, yeah, they're really seizing into this and they're sharing these articles and it's going around within that ecosystem, but it's not breaking out in the way that the Trump campaign wanted. And you can tell that they're frustrated that people aren't picking it up as much as they'd hoped. Mm. A couple more questions. Sorry, go on, Cam. No, I was just saying, it's just a great illustration of how utterly polarised the US media is, uh, you know, compared to uh, almost any other Western country, that really it is, this, that topic, Hunter Biden's laptop is obsessed about on, on Fox and conservative media and utterly ignored on the other media. It's just remarkable. You just, you sit here as a journalist, an Australian journalist in America and just scratch your head. It's just extraordinary, that sort of polarisation. What's a story and what isn't a story? It just goes to the bigger picture of, of American media, I think. Well, yeah, and it also goes to a deeper question about what is truth, um, which is something that Donald Trump spent his entire presidency undermining. And I think the fact that, you know, a large portion of the population didn't actually believe that he had COVID kind of brings that full circle to some extent. But Jacob, what, what were you going to add? Oh, I, I just think around that question about how effective the laptop issue is. I, I think... We're at this sort of funny inflection point in the election with, with you know, just a touch over a week to go. You're not really convincing anyone anymore of, of your policies and why you make the better president. It's, it's all about getting people excited to go out and vote. And, and I think this, and also discouraging the other side, obviously. Yeah, you know, if you're, a, if you're on the fence and you, you start hearing these stories about 
corruption and something, something under Biden and Ukraine and, and Russia, you start going, oh, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe I'll just stay home. That's, that's the calculation for Trump. And I think the weakness for, for Trump and his campaign is it's drawing attention away from what should be a pretty solid message around the economy. I don't think I don't think there's a household in America sitting there going, this this laptop issue will change my life. You know, it's they're worried about much more basic stuff when you mm. go to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I think the laptop's a long way down. And getting back to COVID, there's a few questions on our list from audience members saying, well, um, did Trump getting COVID and recovering from it help him or hinder him? How's that being read? I personally think it, it, it didn't help him. Uh, I mean, I know he, he's out in the rally today, for example, and he says, he says to the crowd, COVID, I mean, seriously, I got it and I'm here now. That's what he says and everyone cheers, you know, whoa. So I guess in a way he plays to a, a strong man persona that Donald Trump does like. But I actually think that um, the way he responded to it was really uh, seen as offensive to quite a few Americans coming out and saying, when he said, don't worry about COVID, you know, I mean, here's a guy with 13 doctors that gets flown straight to, to, from the White House to Bethesda. You know, if anyone's going to be okay, he's going to be okay. And I think people thought to themselves, a lot of Americans thought that's just, that's just totally outrageous to say that stuff. And, and the way he carried on after that and going by the, uh, by the hospital, I just, I think we don't really know, but my gut feeling is that that was a net negative to him rather than the positive. I don't know what the other guys think. Oh, yeah, you saw yeah, it in the polls really immediately. There was a real dip then. Sorry, sorry, Matthew, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, it's, it was kind of like a repeat of the pandemic itself, but this was him actually getting it. It was another opportunity to change things. It was such a big deal. It's only a couple of weeks ago and you almost forget Everyone in the country was talking about the president having COVID. People were so plugged into this. And he could have had the scientists behind him, had Fauci talked about how I've learned from this and I'm going to help us recover as a country like I recovered and been humble about it, you know, and acknowledge that he got a level of care that other people don't get. But instead, he's continued to suggest that it's not that bad. It is honestly kind of baffling the way he responded was not really political in nature. I, I really don't think it was about his own need to prove that he was tough and could get back to it. It wasn't calculated the way that he was behaving. So I think it was another missed opportunity and that it's, it's human nature to feel sympathy to people when they're ill. So I just think it was another missed opportunity for him. Jacob, I'll come back to you because I, I, you obviously had something to add, but also just wanted to sort of expand on that point of the, the sort of nebulous nature of truth now and just how to define what truth is. And also as a reporter covering the campaign, or in fact covering anything, but this is a, a very large and important thing, how much harder that makes our jobs, given that the default position for most people now seems to be that it's not true rather than it is. <laughs> so you're sort of having to solve that problem before you even yeah. start. You, you, you get, it's in your face when you meet, meet, meet a lot of people, you know, that they don't believe anything they're told, just basic facts, um, like the COVID death number. You know, they don't believe it. They don't believe it. They don't believe COVID's a thing when you meet some people. They, they don't believe the election is legitimate in the way it's been conducted. They, they're already convinced that, you know, if Trump loses, it's it's not because 
he lost. It's because the system is rigged and corrupt and broken. I, I have enormous sympathy for American journalists. Like, as a foreign journalist, you're sort of removed from that a little bit because, you know, you're not being questioned in that same way. If you're an American journalist, the pressure is enormous. The, the cynicism around what you do is enormous. And I think, unfortunately, it's a lot of a lot of the American media hasn't helped itself here because it has become so incredibly balkanized and it's it's little caches of media talking to a tight audience mm. um, and it's it's sort of hermetically sealed from each other and so you can say something on one network and you won't be challenged at all really uh, in that in that little in that little ecosystem. Uh, so yeah, huge sympathy for American journalists. I, I, I can imagine it's incredibly tough. Cam, did you have something to add there? I was just going to say, you can see it when, uh, I mean, Donald Trump normally obviously does, um, uh, as all politicians in America normally go to their favourite networks, you know, Democrats go to CNN, they get a fairly soft interview, um, Republicans go to Fox. Uh, Donald Trump, when he goes to Fox, gets a very soft interview. And then all of a sudden, in recent weeks, of course, we've we've seen the uh, the NBC town hall, uh, where he got a very, very uh, tough interview. We saw 60 Minutes, which apparently ran the socks off in America last night, the one that he walked out of the interview with. Again, that was a tough interview. Uh, Jonathan Swan, a couple of months ago, the Australian journalist, you know, so he's getting, he doesn't, he doesn't like tough interviews. But I think part of the issue here is the it, you go to a different network, and you'll get a vastly different interview. And so therefore, the whole political strategy is, 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 is calculated for this whole situation. Do you reckon he doesn't like, do you reckon he doesn't like those interviews? Or he just loves the ratings that they generate? Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they're unfriendly. Oh, I'm going to have to get up and leave now. Look, oh, look at me. You know, any any publicity is good publicity. It's, it's the, no wonder. No wonder the that show rated its socks off. Every American <laughs> wanted to find out why he walked out. Just on the information point, I was just going to include a little anecdote that I found amusing when I was in Florida. You know, which has been a big COVID hotspot and whatnot. And I was speaking to some people there, and they were really concerned about Australia, and they were like, "Are things okay there?" And I worked out what they were talking about was our gun reforms and the fact that your guns were taken away. And they said, you know, crime must have gone through the roof because your guns were taken away. And they were convinced that um, it was very unsafe in Australia and they were worried about how we were going back there. Um, and I was saying, no, I think, you know, things are pretty good and crime is pretty low compared to here. You don't really want to get into an argument or with people that you're interviewing. So I just tried to move the conversation, but clearly they'd been reading some kind of media that I'm not privy to because they were convinced that Australia was in the middle of a big crime wave because um, of gun control. And, and can I just follow, can I just follow on to that briefly? And another thing which I found interesting with Australia is uh, that people ask me, where, you know, when I'm interviewing them, um, where are you from? I say, I'm from uh, you know, Melbourne in, uh, in Australia. And I say, oh, what's coronavirus like there? And I say, well, actually in Melbourne, they've been locked down for, you know, a hundred days. Oh, what do you mean lockdown? They say, I say, well, a long like, time, according to me. Five, yeah. <laughs> five kilometers, but explain it. And there's just this stunned silence. They just stare at you. Oh my God. They can't believe because here in this country, of course, apart from the disastrous management of coronavirus, it's pretty much free and easy. You can do what you want. The risks you take are yours. It's very libertarian, you know, and they're just absolutely stunned that something like that could happen in a country like Australia. So it's two ends of the, the spectrum and they're fascinated by it. 
Guys, we've got about five minutes left and I just wanted to put to you how things might look um, perhaps back end of next week or a little bit later, depending how long it takes if we have a, an incoming Biden administration. Uh, firstly, what are we all going to uh, write about and talk about for the next four years? How, how is everyone going to fill up their 24-hour uh, rolling news bulletins and newspapers? Uh, but, but sort of a deeper question, does everything just revert to sort of the pre-Trump era it was the, as if it never happened or ha has it sort of changed us for good? Matthew, you can go first. Uh, well, the first thing is that Donald Trump is not going anywhere, even if he loses. So it's going to be fascinating if he was to lose, how is he going to respond? There's no expectation that he's going to acknowledge the result. Is he going to give a concession speech? You know, the whole post-election period is going to be so fascinating and maybe quite uh, fraught, uh, like some people would be perhaps tempted to take a holiday, you know, the week after the election. That won't be happening because this is going to be a really uh, interesting period. And Trump and his family uh, are not going away. They're still going to be hugely influential in the party. Um, people who are jockeying for positions, they're still positioning themselves as the heir to um, Trump, you know, maybe his son wants to get involved in politics. Maybe Trump would want to run again himself. We're all going to cover him because he's such a, a loud and interesting um, figure. So as much as some people here kind of are, are ready to change the channel on the show, um, on the Trump reality show, it's still going to be there. And how that plays out is going to be really interesting. Donald Trump is going to be a factor in American life until he dies. Yeah, I said there'd be in a lot of series of Survivor, so I see it going on for a while. Jacob, one minute just to close, and then I'll come back to Cam. Yeah, I, um, look, I agree. He's going to be around. He might even have his own TV network for all we know. You know, yeah. Lachlan Murdoch's going to have to uh, cut a deal with him to make sure he, he, he keeps it on Fox because you know, that'll just split that beautiful silo of Fox where they just, they've got a total market monopoly on the right pretty much. <laughs> so that's a big problem ahead. Anyway, it'll be a fun week. It's going to be a wild week. Cameron? I was going to say, I think, I think uh, it goes beyond Donald Trump. I think Trumpism, if you like, the style of the, the movement that he's created, and it's a genuine movement. I mean, that, that will continue. So that'll be a huge issue. How's the, how do the Republicans rebuild? Who are they going to be in the end? You know? So it's all, kind of, it's all pretty fascinating. Covering um, Joe Biden will be, I mean, Donald Trump's been the gift that keeps giving to journalists, and Joe Biden will be a lot more dull. <laughs> and, if, and if Trump wins, and if Trump wins, remember it's still a ten to fifteen percent chance. You know, very possible. Yeah, yeah. Still, then uh, we, we, life, life I don't will continue to be bizarre. I don't think any of us are, are prepared to call it. Um, we're all scarred from 2016. Anything could still happen when we have about a week to go. And then which era will we be in? Trump Trump Mark II or, or Joe Biden? Cameron Stewart is an associate editor and Washington correspondent for the Australian newspaper. Jacob Grieber is the Australian Financial Review's US correspondent based in Washington, D.C. And Matthew Knott is North America correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Great chat, guys. Thank you so much.